everybody. I am Ashwin. And I am Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. Uh, today we are excited to talk about CAR T-cell therapies in lymphoma. We have an expert on cellular therapies in lymphoma, Dr. Frederick Locke. Vice Chair, Department of Blood and Marrow Transplant, and, um, and Program Co-Leader at Immuno-Oncology at Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida. So let's do some quick introductions. Dr. Locke, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Yeah, hi. Um, thanks, Ashwin Raj. Great to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Fred Locke. I'm a, a MD uh, by training. I, I trained... Um, Initially, I went to medical school at Wayne State University in Detroit. I did my uh, internal medicine residency there at the Detroit Medical Center, was chief resident, did my HEMONC fellowship training at the University of Chicago. And then um, I've been here at Moffitt Cancer, and I did a postdoctoral fellowship there as well in the laboratory. Um, and I've been here at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida for uh, 12 years, just about my 12-year anniversary. Um, and my clinical practice is primarily, uh, I see patients with lymphoma and to a lesser degree, multiple myeloma. Uh, I'm a transplant physician by training. Um, so I do autologous and allogeneic transplants. I also do now um, have an extensive CAR T cell therapy clinic for patients with lymphoma and myeloma. And uh, I also run a translational research lab here at Moffitt, primarily where we study um, why CAR T-cell therapy works or doesn't work, try to design new CAR T-cell therapy, uh, new CAR T-cell therapies, and also um, design investigator-initiated trials. And um, I also um, now run the, uh, the, the blood marrow transplant and cellular immunotherapy department here at Moffitt. So, um, but glad to be here with you guys and, and talk about um, guessing CAR T-cell therapy. You wear multiple hats. Uh, you do administrative role. You see patients as well as you run your lab as well. I don't know how you manage to do all these things. Well, you know, it's been a long road. I would say, you know, um, yeah, you just you just do it, um, and one foot in front of the other, try to plan things out. And um, I have to say that here at Moffitt, it's a, it's a team. Right. I mean, this is a team approach, whether it comes to the way we treat our patients. Um, right. Yeah. Whether it's in the lab, all the staff in the lab or whether it's running clinical trials and all the coordinators and data and also faculty. Um, we work as a team and we have each other's backs and, and that that helps us um, all of us succeed. So to start off on the topic, uh, like you said, uh, we're going to talk about uh, CAR T cell therapy in lymphoma. First of all, for our audience, can you please elaborate on the three CAR products that are currently approved for aggressive B cell lymphoma? Yeah, absolutely. So CAR T cell therapy or chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy is quite simply a, a gene cell therapy where the T cells are reprogrammed against a specific target. And the CAR or chimeric antigen receptor is the protein that does that. It sits on the, uh, it spans the extracellular uh, domain and, and it, it basically um, activates the T cell when it sees its target. Um, there are currently three, uh, as you mentioned, three FDA approved CAR T cell therapies for treatment of large B cell lymphoma and, and its variants. Um, those three uh, therapies are called axacaptogene silalusal. Um, oh, 
which is marketed as Yascarta, um, and, and for short, we call it Axisel. Uh, the second one uh, is called Tisagen like Lucil, um, um, which is marketed as Kimraya. We call it Tisacel. Uh, and the third one is Lysacaptogene Merilucil, um, which is marketed as Brianzi, and we call it Lysacel. So Axisel, Tisacel, and Lysacel are the three CAR T-cell therapies. It's important to note that, that um, they all target the same thing, which is CD19, a protein on the surface of uh, B cells. And they all, uh, the CAR itself, the binding portion of the CAR is all derived from the same monoclonal antibody. So they all bind to CD19 in the exact same way. They have other differences, but, but that they share. And is there any differences in the composition um, of these three different products? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I mentioned they bind the same thing and, and the binding domains are the same or at least derive from the same antibody, but the transmembrane domains and some of the hinge and linker domains are different. Um, they all have a, a, a CD3 uh, activating domain, but they also have a co-stimulatory domain. And Axisel has a CD28 co-stimulatory domain, and um, uh, cell and Lysacel have a 41BB co-stimulatory domain. And because of the biology of T-cell activation, um, CD28 is typically um, uh, activates the cells more rapidly, and they expand a bit more rapidly with Axisel, um, whereas 41BB co-stimulation um, is a little less um, um, rapid. Uh, but those cells may persist a little bit longer um, once infused. Um, so those are some biological differences. There's also differences in the way these cells are manufactured. Um, and and uh, some of that is proprietary. and We don't know all the details of how these companies make these cells, but sure. um, you know, AxiCell is basically manufactured from the whole leukophoresis product. So they start with a leukophoresis collection of unfractionated white blood cells. And, and uh, AxiCell starts with the whole leukophoresis white blood cell product. So it includes myeloid cells, T cells, other things, and they activate the T cells and put the gene in. It also has a gamma retroviral gene delivery, whereas the others um, uh, start with a T cell uh, step, T cell selection step, such that they're only using T cells when they manufacture. And the, and the gene that's uh, the viral vector that delivers them is a lentivirus. And so these are some of the differences um, in the manufacture, and there's others, um, but uh, all these things sort of uh, lead to what is somewhat of a different product. And then finally, lysocell specifically is manufactured in a way such that the CD4 T cells and CD8 T cells are manufactured separately, and then they, they arrive back on the treatment site in two different vials, and they're given in a one-to-one -one ratio back to the patient. So those are some of the differences between them. They also have differences in, in the conditioning chemotherapy that's used to lymphodeplete the patient before CAR T-cell therapy treatment because that's an important uh, feature. Uh, generally, we use fludarabine cyclophosphamide uh, and, and those um, that will lower the number of normal lymphocytes so that, uh, and, and raise homeostatic cytokines so that when the CAR T-cells are thawed and reinfused into the vein, um, they will expand and grow and proliferate because of that lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Um, these three products were initially studied in the relapsed refractory um, large B-cell lymphoma. 
and they were first initially studied in two or more lines of chemo after chemotherapy. Is there any differences in the CR rate of these three different products? Uh, no, they're similar. I think so. The CR rates for AxiCell are a little bit higher than they are for TisaCell and Lysacell. Sure. But um, they're all in about the same range, 50 to 60%, 45 to 60%. But the CR rate is probably not the relevant clinical measure of success with these therapies. Because you put a patient through, I mentioned the lymphodepleting chemotherapy, but you, you know, collected the cells, you have to wait for manufacture. Um, and then, and then you know, the patient's at risk for some toxicities, which we can talk more about, but but you put the patient through this entire process, this entire procedure, and you're not looking for just a response. You're looking for a durable response when you do CAR T cell therapy. And so um, in CR itself, in lymphoma, if you're using the, the Lugano response criteria, really now takes into account uh, PET positivity or PET negativity, if you will, for it to be a true metabolic CR. And one of the things we've realized is that CAR T cell therapy itself induces inflammation in the tumor sites, which, which obscures the, the relevance of a PET positive finding, especially at one month after infusion. So really, until we get to three months after CAR T cell therapy, at least for large B cell lymphoma, we're uncertain what's going to happen. Unless the patient has frankly progressed, grown, you know, and, and obviously tumor growing, we don't see much pseudo progression with CAR T for lymphoma. But if it's obviously growing, that, that's a bad sign. But otherwise, we might see PET positivity at a one-month scan, and it, it, that patient could be cured, and that PET could continue to clear up over time, or they could eventually be shown to progress. And so the CR rate in and of itself doesn't matter as much as the durable remission rate, for that I would say. And that's a good point. Um, I think in assessing the efficacy of all these three different products, on a similar line, I think uh, one thing we always think about uh, CAR-T is the toxicity as well. Is there any differences in the toxicity profile of these three products in the um, clinical trials which have done second line or more? Absolutely. Yeah. So so there's definitely differences. So so back, back just to the efficacy standpoint, so the CR rates are slightly different, but the durable response rates are remarkably similar in large B-cell lymphoma patients. Um, I would say in a general sense and not studied prospectively, and you can't compare these necessarily easily compare the pivotal trials and third or later line, but the durable response rates in the third or later line setting are anywhere in the 30% to 40, 45% range, durable remission rates. And they're a little bit higher probably for AxiCell than TisaCell. Lysacell and AxiCell are somewhat similar in that 40% range. Um, maybe slightly higher um, for uh, relapse patients who responded to their last line of therapy as opposed to refractory patients who didn't respond to their last line of therapy. But, but um, at least in general, they're in the same ballpark. Um, from a toxicity standpoint, there's more clear differences. Um, Axicaptogene cellulosal or AxiCell um, definitely has the highest rates of, of um, the toxicity that we call cytokine release syndrome or CRS, characterized by high fever. Hallmark is high fever, but also can progress to um, hypoxia, hypotension. Um, patients can need pressors. 
But but the overall rates of CRS with actually sell are in the 80 to 90 percent range, um, whereas um, they're they're lower in um, in patients who are getting T-cell or Lysacel. Uh, more, uh, for example, with Lysacel, the overall um, CRS rates are like 40 to 50%, whereas T-cell, they're about 50, 50% or so. So, so many fewer patients will develop that cytokine release syndrome with, with um, Lysacel or T-cell than Axi-cell. What do you think there is a difference in the CRS between these three different products, especially looking at the Axi-cell versus the other two products? There's definitely more CRS with AxiCell. And, and, and there's also more neurotox with AxiCell as well. Um, you know, there's higher, higher rates of, of neurologic toxicity with AxiCell than, than with um, Lysacel or T-cell. Those two, Lysacel and T-cell, seem to have somewhat similar uh, toxicity profiles with, um, with... Is this still related to any of the co-stimulatory domain? Is that the reason why... We think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we think it's because of that 41BD costim domain that what happens is after infusion, when they activate, they, they, the T cells engage their target, they, they're less likely to proliferate rapidly. Um, they, they do proliferate, but there's a, a more gentle increase in their numbers and they persist longer. And so maybe because of that, um, there's a lower, um, lower rate of toxicities. But you know, we won't fully understand all these things, and it may not be that simple. Um, but but that's that's what we suspect is that it's the 41BB costim domain that that um, probably accounts for that. It's also possible that the one-to-one -one ratio CD4s and CD8s. I don't know that that's a critical feature in and of itself as much as you need both CD4s and CD8s, and having a fixed ratio gives you certainty about you know, your efficacy because you have both and, and probably maybe to some degree your toxicity because you have, you have both there. The other major toxicity category that we look at in the acute phase of treatment is, is called immune cell associated uh, neurotoxicity syndrome or ICANS or just neurotoxicity. But, but the, um, the textbook description of it is, is expressive aphasia, a patient who can understand but can't speak. Um, and, but that's, you know, there's all, it's a, it's a huge spectrum of, of toxicities, everything from, you know, just confusion, um, word finding difficulties, all the way to obtundation, seizure, um, and even um, perhaps unrelated, there's been some case of cerebral edema um, with some CAR T cell therapies, but that's extraordinarily rare. And both the cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity syndrome um, are generally short-lived, can be treated with corticosteroids or other immune um, um, anti-immune uh, medications like tocilizumab, anti-IL-6 receptor blocking antibody, and um, and so you know we we manage it for our patients and try to get them through. Sounds good. Um, so, Dr. Locke, let's now jump into second-line treatment, which is a hot topic right now, as you know, and was clearly the highlight of Ash 2021. So first to set the stage for our audience, can you comment on what was the standard of care for second line treatment of large B-cell lymphoma, uh, I mean, aggressive large B-cell lymphoma prior to these three RCTs being um, around, you know, late 2021? Yeah, so, you know, I was um, fortunate enough to be, um, to be an investigator on the Zuma 7 study and really um, part of the, you know, study design steering committee and, and, and helping to lead the study with accrual and, and, and the Zuma 7 trial 
was one of those three randomized trials, which we'll get to, that was comparing CAR-T to the existing standard of care treatment for second line large B cell lymphoma. And, and that standard of care was established over 30 years ago, um, in the 1980s, 1990s, um, which is the use of combination chemotherapy in the second line setting. And for patients who respond, consolidation with autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And the concept there is really just heavy duty chemo. You've got a patient in remission, you give them high dose chemotherapy. And because it's so that high dose combination chemotherapy regimen knocks out the bone marrow, you have to consolidate with a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. That transplant, that, that high dose therapy and transplant only works for patients who've already responded to a second line combination chemotherapy regimen. But that, that standard has been around for like 30 years. And, and this is the first thing to challenge that. And, and, uh, and three randomized trials were presented at the, the ASH annual meeting in December of 2021. Sounds good. Uh, and for our audience, for the rest of the talk, we will be mostly focusing on these three uh, pivotal RCTs, all of them combined or uh, comparing CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapies to the existing standard of care and uh, the trials being Zuma7, Belinda, and Transform. So, Dr. Locke, is there any inclusion criteria differences between these three trials, Zuma7, Belinda, as well as Transform? There are slight differences, but they're remarkably similar, is what I would say. All three studies... Um, sought to get patients who uh, needed second-line therapy for large B-cell lymphoma. They had had received uh, appropriate upfront therapy um, with an anthracycline-containing regimen with the addition of um, rituximab um, or other CD19-directed agent and monoclonal antibody and had relapsed within 12 months of initial therapy. And the reason for that is First of all, that's the majority of patients who are going to relapse. They will relapse with them. Who do relapse. The majority of patients who do relapse will have that relapse within the first 12 months. And they're at, they have worse outcomes than a patient who relapses beyond 12 months or even, even later does better. So the intent was to, to pick the patients sort of at the, the highest risk for poor outcomes, needing second line therapy. Um, but otherwise, you know, the, the inclusion criteria were, were remarkably similar. Um, maybe some slight differences in allowance for central nervous system disease or, or the type of transformation um, or transformation at all. But really, these are very similar designed uh, studies. And um, there is also, like you mentioned, early relapse, um, where inclusion criteria in this trials. Is there a clear-cut definition for the early relapse? I have to say it's not clearly defined because that, that definition is used differently across different studies. Um, you know, whether it's 12 months from diagnosis, 12 months from initial therapy, 12 months from completion of initial therapy, I think those are all um, different definitions that have been used. But clearly patients who, who um, progress within 12 months of completion of their initial therapy have poor outcomes. They're, they're unlikely to do, you know, they, they have a low likelihood of cure of their lymphoma with combination chemo and autologous transplant. Right. So um, as you know, bridging therapy is always something that comes up when we talk about CAR T-cell therapy and uh, many patients between the vein to vein time, they will need some bridging. Uh, what, was there any major difference between the trials in respect to allowance of bridging therapy? 
Yeah, so this, kind. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is a, a great question and, and certainly um, up for much debate. Um, uh, bridging therapy, as you outlined, in, it really means after you do the leukapheresis to collect the cells for manufacture of CAR T. So, so bridging therapy refers to uh, the use of, of treatment directed at the lymphoma after leukapheresis is done to collect the cells to manufacture CAR-T and giving that therapy while you're waiting for the manufacture of CAR-T before you start the lymphodepletion for CAR-T. That's what we consider bridging. And, and you sort of mentioned it as, as patients will need. And I, I, I challenge that. Um, yes, when we have a lymphoma patient in front of us, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma grows quickly. We can see it grow over the course of a week. You can watch a, a tumor grow, right, um, or two. Um, but if the intent is to cure the patient with CAR T cell therapy, we have to ask the question is what is the intent of the bridging therapy? Is the intent to make the doctor feel better? Is the intent to cure the patient? I don't, I don't think it should be either of those things. The intent should be if a patient requires some therapy because they have symptoms or signs associated with their lymphoma, you need to give them something, right? And so, so you know, the first question is, do they need it? You could also argue that, and, and there's data that clearly shows up, and we've published some of this data, that larger tumors are less likely to be cured with CAR-T, and patients with a more pro-inflammatory state, high ferritin, CRP, those patients are less likely to be cured with CAR-T cell therapy. So you could also wonder whether having bridging would reduce the volume of tumor, reduce the inflammation. Um, that being said, in a refractory patient, especially third or later line, I rarely see that giving, you know, a cycle of combination chemotherapy really reduces tumor burden significantly. It might slow it down or reduce the inflammation. And so my practice is generally to, in a patient without any signs or symptoms, um, I will consider a few things. One is if the signs or symptoms develop and they're mild, I will try to give them corticosteroid bridging. And that is what was designed into the Zuma-1 study. It only allowed corticosteroid bridging after collection. The other two trials, randomized trials, allowed for bridging chemotherapy and specifically combination chemotherapy, the same combination chemotherapy that you would give if your intent was to give combo chemotherapy and then see if they have a remission and then go to transplant. And so for the Zuma-7 trial, we said no chemotherapy because in our mind, that's the start of second line treatment. And, and that's not our intent. Our intent is to give CAR-T a second line treatment. And so, so the Zuma-7 trial didn't allow for bridging chemotherapy. The other two, uh, Belinda and Transform, did allow for bridging chemotherapy. Um, and so that, that is a major difference. The other um, thing you have to wonder is like, how long does it take to get those CAR T cells? Because that's another factor that will will impact whether um, whether you need bridging, right? The longer you have to wait, the more likely a, a patient will will develop um, symptoms or signs that require therapy. So so that's my take on bridging. Um, but the answer to your question is all three studies um, were not the same in the allowance for bridging. Zuma seven did not allow bridging chemotherapy. Yes, the combination chemo whereas the other two allowed a combination chemo. I would also say in my practice, as a standard of care when I give CAR-T, I often consider radiation therapy, especially if there's a, a single bulky area or, or we can fit most of the disease within a field. 
um, I find that to be an effective way to bridge a patient, especially with bulky disease. I think one counter argument that you know we hear, we heard a lot um, after your presentation at ASH and subsequently the publication New England Journal of Medicine is given that you're not allowing patients uh, to get bridging therapy, you're selecting patients who are have a more stable disease compared to the other clinical trials. That's why you know the CAR-T was more successful. I'm I'm curious to know your take on this. I think it's nonsense. I think anyone who's involved in the trials would know that these are highly refractory patients who have active disease. You know, um, it is true that if the if if you had a patient in front of you and you thought, gosh, this guy's going to need treatment in a week, yeah, it, that's true. You wouldn't have enrolled him on Zuma Seven, but you know what? You wouldn't have probably enrolled him on the other studies either. So I think in terms of comparing the studies, I think that's that's nonsense, quite frankly. Now you could you know, say in terms of like CAR-T in general, like, you know, you do have to wait for manufacture. And so, yeah, there, there's some selection there with CAR-T. Um, and, you know, look, if somebody needs therapy immediately, you're not going to be able to collect them as a standard of care for CAR-T or on trial. You're going to have to treat them immediately and, and deal with that. So right. I think that's that's fair to say, um, you know, I, these are high-risk patients who would not do well and I think that's borne out when you look at the patient characteristics across the studies. They're all poor, high-risk patients. And again, if you look at the patients who on the standard of care arm and how they did, how many got to responded to, to chemo, responded to transplant or got transplant, it's hard to argue that these are low-risk patients. They, they, they certainly didn't respond to chemo and transplant like they're low-risk patients. About talking about uh, uh, the primary endpoints in these trials, what were the primary endpoints? Yeah, so all three studies uh, selected event-free survival as an endpoint. Why event-free survival? Well, a couple reasons. One is if you're comparing the paradigm of chemo and if you respond autologous transplant versus CAR-T, when you go down that standard of care route with chemo, it, the transplant only works if a patient has had a response. So if a patient has stable disease, the transplant is not going to help them. We know that's well-established, right? And so there are scenarios where a patient had stable disease, couldn't get the transplant, and had to switch therapy. And that's considered an event. Now, exactly how that's defined across the trial is a little different, especially with the bridging and other things. But, um, but event-free survival allows for that, hey, we have a stable disease, transplant's not going to fix them, we're going to go to plan B, and that's an event. And so, so that's why event-free survival was selected as, as the um, primary endpoint for all, for all these studies. Yeah, like you said, the event-free survival is defined in, uh, in these different trials in a different way. Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more about how the definitions differed in these trials? For event-free survival? Yes, it's, it's very similar. In fact, it's uh, they're almost analogous. There's very minor differences, um, primarily in in the allowance for how long a stable disease is allowed to continue before it's called an event. But I think that those differences had minimal effects on the outcome of those studies. So I, I, I don't I don't think delving too deep into that enlightens us much about the outcomes of these studies. They're really very similar in terms of their design. 
Right. Next, uh, we'll go to the uh, crossover rules in the three trials, because uh, as you know, crossover should be considered appropriate in this setting because CAR-T was already accepted as a standard of care in third line and beyond, and it will also impact how we interpret the overall survival results. Uh, to your knowledge, was the crossover rate to CAR-T in the ACT arm different in the three trials or were they largely comparable? Well, so I think um, certainly CAR-T cell therapy was approved in the third or later line setting for all three of these, these CAR-T cell therapies that are being tested. Um, and, and patients on all three studies had, had the opportunity to get CAR-T cell therapy in third or later line. Two of the studies, the Belinda and the TRANSFORM study, built in crossover to CAR-T within the clinical trial, such that um, patients were leukophoresed at, at a study startup, even if they were randomized to the standard of care. Now, you could argue that you're, you're, you're subjecting a patient to leukophoresis who may not ever get CAR-T, but that's what was done. Um, and then for standard of care patients who progressed, they would then have opportunity to, um, to have CAR-T manufactured and then, and then given to them as a third line. Um, for the Zuma-7 study, crossover was not formally built into the study. Uh, CAR-T cell therapy was FDA approved for third or later line, and so it would have been a standard of care treatment. And so patients could get standard of care or they could get go on a clinical trial. Um, but patients did cross, uh, crossover is the wrong word, but patients did get CAR-T cell therapy um, if they were on the standard of care arm in Zuma-7 as well. And in fact, um, if you look at um, um, the, the patients that sort of crossover or got CAR T cell therapy in the standard of care arm, the rates are extraordinarily similar. About 55, 51% in Belinda, 55 in Transform, I think 56 in Zuma 7 of the standard of care patients eventually got CAR T cell therapy. So regardless of whether it was built in as a crossover or patients on Zuma 7 got it as a standard of care or on trial after they progressed, on a different trial after they progressed, a remarkably similar percent got CAR T cell therapy in the standard of care. And that's 50, 56% of all patients randomized. So in Zuma 7, 56% of all patients randomized to standard of care eventually got CAR T cell therapy anyway. So you're not you know, you're, you're not saving everyone from getting CAR T cell therapy by going in the standard of care route. Um, but yes, patients were getting uh, CAR T cell therapy if they were randomized standard of care. Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, a great point. And I think uh, that also makes the interpretation of overall survival, you know, much, much easier in the sense that there, there is a trend towards, for example, overall survival benefit, despite so many patients, you know, be crossing over or not crossing over, but getting CAR-T in the, in the AACT arm. We'll definitely talk about that a little bit more, but yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Talking about the control arm, um, how many percent of the patients got uh, auto transplant? Because that is the um, second line of therapy right now uh, for uh, DLBCL. Yeah. So in remission it's first. part of the second, yeah, it's Right, it's part of that treatment paradigm, if you will, right? Right, um, right. It's, it's, they only get autotransplant if they respond. And rem again, remarkably similar across the trials, Belinda, 33% of standard of care patients 
got second line chemo and eventually got a transplant. In Zuma 7, 36% who were randomized to standard of care got second line chemo, eventually got auto transplant. In Transform, slightly higher at 47%. Um, and Do you think this mirrors the real world practice as well? Absolutely. I think it exactly mirrors the real world practice. There's a, there's a, a, a general um, gestalt feeling that 50% of patients should respond to second line chemo and get a transplant. That is not real world data. That's actually going back to pre-rituximab era when rituximab didn't exist and you got second line chemo and you got a transplant, maybe 40 to 50% of patients. But in the, in the rituximab era, patients who progress after RCHOP or similar induction regimen, the percentage of patients, if you look to the orchard study, which, which is a, a post-rituximab, in the rituximab era, um, uh, randomized clinical trial testing out different salvage regimens. And if you look at that, overall 35% of patients got to transplant in that randomized clinical trial, which is remarkably similar to Belinda and Zuma 7. Uh, again, a, a few more in transform got the autologous transplant. Um, but really, I think this, this absolutely mirrors um, what we would expect in, in this setting with high-risk patients who've relapsed within 12 months of initial therapy. Yeah, so basically, you know, I, I think, uh, Dr. Locke, you have already answered it a little bit. Uh, we, I was asking you before, like regarding the biology of patients in three trials, you know, do you think the biology was different? Uh, and, you know, you, you kind of say that you think the biology of the patients were similar kind of in all the three trials and they were heavily refractory. Um, also, you know, with the one question that comes up is, you know, the, these trials included both primary refractory patients as well as early relapse patients. So was the proportion of primary refractory patients similar in the three trials or was it different given we know that that is the really like ultra high risk group of patients who are primary refractory to frontline therapy? Yeah, so again, the, the enrollment criteria for the three studies were similar. Um, if we look at the, the sort of patient demographics, we can get a, a little bit more granular. But I think in general, they look pretty remarkably similar. Um, for example, in the Zuma 7 trial, um, if we look at the sort of demographic data, um, overall of all patients randomized, um, 80, almost 80% 80 had stage 3-4 disease. Many of them were older patients, greater than 65 years of older, 30%. And how many were primary refractory? 74% of all patients on Zuma 1 were primary refractory not responding or well or, or relapsing very rapidly from initial um, from initial treatment and then similarly on Zuma 7 you know uh, about 50% of patients were either double hit uh, by fish uh, or double expressor by immunohistochemistry um, if you look at the transform uh, study uh, there were um, uh, you know about 25 to 40% 30% sort sort of uh, range of of patients who are over 65, so about the same range. And, you know, again, we've got uh, refractory patients and, and primary relapsed patients that are almost the exact same percent, 74, 75%, 73% in that range of patients who are uh, primary refractory. There were a few patients with secondary CNS lymphoma in transform that was not allowed on Zuma 7. And then if you look at the Belinda study, Again, similar numbers, about 30% of patients were 65 years or older. Um, you know, you've got uh, high-grade um, 
double expressor, sorry, um, uh, double hit lymphoma uh, in about 10 to 20% of patients, um, and uh, which is similar to Zuma 7 by FISH. Um, and then primary refractory patients was about, I don't know, 70%, uh, 65 to 70%. So very similar in terms of like the risk categories across the three studies. I, I don't see major differences here. Pretty remarkable in, in how um, similarly they lined up in terms of uh, disease and risk ca categories and patient characteristics. I don't see a difference that would explain any difference in results. Got it. Other important thing uh, which you briefly touched on previously is vein to vein time. Is it significant in these three trials? Yeah, so vein to vein time is is absolutely significant, and it's it's a really relevant thing when we talk about. Um, again, we mentioned it in bridging, but um, it's well established that the manufacture process for AxiCell is is probably the most rapid turnaround time. And if you talk about sort of like uh, how long it takes to manufacture, it's like 18 days, uh, door to door sort of, uh, or vein to vein, which vein to vein takes into account lymphodepleting chemotherapy as well. So 36 day range, whereas Belinda is much longer, uh, over 50 days. And in fact, if you compare patients treated in Europe on Belinda versus the US, the vein to vein time was even longer in Europe. That's probably not because of shipping. That's it's probably because of the practice patterns where they were giving more bridging therapy in Europe, um, just because of the the practice patterns there. But but maybe shipping um, played a role. Um, in the real world, time to get the CAR T cells matters, right? It tells us whether we need to get bridging or not. Uh, and it's beyond that. It's like the scheduling of manufacturer matters too. Like when can they start? Um, because that often informs when you do the leukapheresis. So you may be waiting just to do leukophoresis for a manufacturer study. Do you yeah, think this vein-to-vein -vein, um, differences also led to efficacy differences between these trials? Look, I think there we don't full. So we haven't talked too much about efficacy, but but I can you know just. But yes, vein-to-vein -vein time is likely one of the features that could have impacted efficacy. To answer your question, yes. Yeah, no, I was just, uh, you know, reiterating one of the prior points that Dr. Locke said that in Zuma 7 trial, there was, you know, only corticosteroid was allowed, but no other bridging chemotherapy was allowed. Uh, I, I mean, I think it, it, it was maybe possible because the vein-to-vein -vein time was the shortest in Zuma 7 trial, whereas in Belinda, for example, it was 52 days. So, you know, it would be very, you know, more patients will definitely need bridging therapy, I think, uh, if it's 52, which is a very long time, vein-to-vein -vein time. I don't know, if Dr. Locke, if you agree. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, um, and it's important to distinguish between, you know, door-to-door -door time versus vein-to-vein -vein time, because door-to-door -door tells you how long it took to make the cells and ship them back. Vein-to-vein -vein tells you how long it took to infuse them. And if you're giving bridging, perhaps unnecessarily, you may need to wait for a recovery of the patient. That's going to prolong vein-to-vein -vein time. But there's no doubt the manufacturing time is critical because it will tell, it will inform whether bridging is necessary or not. And I think that bridging, the longer the time it takes to give, to give CAR-T, the uh, more likely you are to have progressive disease that can't be controlled or the need to give bridging that can cause toxicities that create issues. So absolutely um, vein to vein time and door to door time are critical features um, when looking at what CAR-T cell therapy to choose. 
Yeah, yeah. So now let's switch gears and jump into the results, the fun part. So can you summarize for the for our audience the top line results of the three RCTs and for, uh, mainly the primary endpoint, you know, which is the EFS? Yeah. So um, I think that you know I may have mentioned Zuma Seven and Transform have very similar results, although the Zuma Seven follow up is much longer. And the reason for that is Zuma Seven did not have a um, a a interim analysis built into the study design. Um, the safety review team, uh, Data Safety Mining Board was looking at the data, but, but they did not stop the trial and, and the investigators didn't see the data. Whereas the transform study had built in a pre-specified data check to see if they had met their primary endpoint of EFS. And it did um, at the early look. And so because of that, the longer uh, TransZuma 7 has much longer follow. That being said, the, um, the objective response rates to CAR T-cell therapy between Zuma 7 and Transform are very similar in the 80, 83%, I think, for Zuma 7, 85, 86 for Transform. CR rates very similar, 65%, 66% for both, um, even higher than we see in the third line setting, really. Um, and the median event-free survival, and I would argue median event-free survival is probably not the ideal thing to look at for durable remission rate, but um, it's in the same ballpark, 8.3 months for Zuma 7, 10 months for Transform. Um, most importantly is that on Zuma 7, 41% of patients remained in remission alive if they were on the randomized to the AxiCell. And that's randomized, intent to treat. Randomized to AxiCell, 41% remained in remission alive at two years after treatment, or at least the Kaplan-Meier estimate of, of uh, of two-year event-free survival is 41% and is only 16% on the standard of care on. So clearly, um, if your intent is to go down a treatment path and give a definitive therapy that could be it, CAR-T gives you the better option. We don't have that follow-up data for TRANSFORM, but um, both studies met their event-free survival endpoint with significant p-values in the 0.0000 range. Um, so clearly, CAR T-cell therapy had better event-free survival. The Belinda study did not meet its event-free survival endpoint. It had a lower objective response rate to CAR T with 46%, a lower CR rate at 28%. And um, the median event-free survival on Belinda for CAR T was, was three months. So clearly, it did not perform as well. Um, and there's multiple potential reasons for that. Bridging chemotherapy is one of the potential reasons we talked about. It's also, uh, um, we could look at the, the conditioning chemotherapy, the doses of fludarabine cyclophosphamide slightly lower for, um, for uh, uh, t like Lucil on the Belinda study. That could have impacted outcomes. Um, I don't think patient selection criteria played a huge role. Um, conditioning chemotherapy, could it have hurt? Yeah, if you delayed and gave opportunity for toxicity, or it might have helped patients on the lysocell study. It's hard to say. Um, I think ultimately it's it's also possible that tisagen like Lucil may not work as well as the other agent. It's just something we don't fully know, but it's a possibility that we we have to recognize. Yeah, so so that's that's the the bottom line is that um, from an efficacy standpoint, um, axicell and lysocell perform better than standard of care. And, um, and, and both are now FDA approved as second line therapies for patients who relapse within 12 months of initial um, therapy. And actually, Lysacel is even approved 
beyond 12 months of relapse for patients who aren't eligible for, um, for uh, stem cell transplant. And that's based on the other, another trial results for patients ineligible to, uh, for transplant. All right. So yeah, I mean, based on what you were saying, it seems like it was partly, you know, maybe that that uh, the tisacel is not as good of a drug, and and partly that you know that the study design, you know, the bridging chemotherapy, maybe both played a role in the, in the results being discordant, you know, in the, in the three trials. But clearly, the two trials were were positive, and and one was negative. So I mean, overall, if I have to look at all the three trials together, I I would think that you know CARTI. Uh, still wins over auto auto transplant and I mean the whole package of salvage chemotherapy plus auto transplant in second line. In my view, CAR T cell therapy clearly beats out autologous stem cell transplant. So uh, we'll go uh, to the acute toxicities. You know, we always think about toxicities in the, with CAR T cell therapy, with especially CRS and ICANS. Um, can you comment on? You already commented on the different toxicity profile in third line setting. You know, just briefly, was there any major differences in these three RCTs in the second line setting compared to what we already know in the third line setting, or was it fairly similar um, across the three well, products? It's it's what we expected, slightly lower rates of severe grade three or higher cytokine release syndrome and grade three or higher ICANs than on the initial third line studies. But I think that's because we're intervening earlier at earlier grade toxicity. Um, for example, Zuma 7 had only 6% of patients on the CAR-T arm developed grade three or higher cytokine release syndrome, which is lower than the 11% seen on the Zuma 1 and even lower than the 7% we see in the real world. So um, I just think we're getting better at avoiding those severe CRS toxicities, um, lower grade three or higher CRS rates, 1% and transform about 5% in balloons. So similar to, uh, to Zuma 7. Uh, and that neurotox, severe neurotox was, was lower and transformable in Belinda in the single digits compared to 20, 21% in Zuma 7. So, you know, again, we're seeing that axis cell has a, um, has more toxicities, more likely to develop toxicities, um, but has really good efficacy. Um, and, um, you know, again, remarkable results. We're able to manage these toxicities in most of these patients. Now, uh, you know, a practical question. So let's say if you have a patient with DLBCL who relapsed six months after RCHOP, you know, after initially achieving CR and was seen at the community and got two cycles of, let's say, RGDP and outside hospital. And now they are in a CR or a PR, let's say, and uh, referred to you for, consol for consideration of ACT versus CAR-T. So in this patient, would you take that patient to ACT or would you take that patient to CAR-T if they are already coming to you in a CR or PR after se second line salvage chemotherapy? So the Zuma, none of these trials, Zuma 7 and Transform were not designed to test out whether a patient in remission is, is better off getting CAR-T or autologous transplant. That's not how the studies were designed. The studies were designed to test out CAR-T versus chemo and transplant. <clears throat> that being said, we know, especially for a patient in complete remission after salvage chemo, they have a great opportunity for long-term disease-free survival with an autologous transplant. So if I see that patient, if I if I if they're in a CR and it's clear, I'm going to plan for an autologous transplant. If they're in a PR, it depends. If it's a, a, a really good PR and it's barely PET positive, I may do a transplant. If it's a questionable PR, there's something I can try to biopsy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, do that or kind of say, you know what, this PR doesn't look like much of a PR to me. 
um, you know, let's let's uh, let's probably think about a future with with CAR T cell therapy. Um, but the reality is that for a patient in remission after second line chemo, transplant can work. I don't think that if I have a patient in front of me who hasn't got second line therapy, or I have a referring doctor calling me and telling me they have a patient who progressed after our chop, I tell them do not get second line chemo. The patient is actively needing therapy. Refer them for CAR T as the second line. Yeah. So well, the only situation in, in which you would definitely consider ACTs if they are already in a CR to salvage chemoimmunotherapy, but if they are in a yeah. Or a very good PR. Very yeah. good PR, yeah. yeah. And, and again, I don't recommend going to that second line chemo. And, 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 and people say, oh, well, we should do a risk stratified approach. And my answer to that is we already did that. We didn't need to do randomized trials to tell us that. If you want to give second line chemo and see if it works, go ahead. But, but the randomized trials tell us that that's not the best treatment strategy, in yeah. my view. So, yeah, yeah. Now, so, talking a little bit about the future directions. Where do you think you know bispecific T cell engages would fit in the you know treatment landscape of uh, relapsed lymphoma now that uh, we have CAR T in the second line? I think we need to see. I mean, we we don't we don't have um, FDA approval yet. We don't have FDA approval. We have data that in the third right. setting, or even sometimes after CAR T, that these agents can work well. How that's going to play together with CAR T is a bit unclear. <clears throat> My, and even, you know, you could say, well, will they be given in the community instead of referring patients for CAR-T? I don't think that's what's best for patients. And I'm not sure referring docs or community oncologists want to be giving by specific agents that have high rates of cytokine release syndrome on the first and second infusions. These are patients that need to be hospitalized. And are, so um, it remains to be seen, but it, the data to me looks clear that CAR T cell therapy is superior to bispecifics. So I still would prefer to give a patient CAR T cell therapy if it's an option. All right. Uh, you know, do you think, well, this is kind of a, you know, more of a speculative question. I saw uh, the Zuma 12 trial that was published in Nature Medicine on um, Axisel and newly diagnosed large B cell lymphoma. So just wanted to pick your brain on, do you think CD19 CAR T cell therapy will finally be able to beat ARCHOP for frontline therapy in aggressive lymphoma? I think it's possible if, if the right patient population is selected, high risk. And um, we're going to see that. I think there's a trial being designed, should open soon, called Zuma 23. Um, I can't give you more detail, but I think it's possible that we, um, we see CAR T cell therapy move up to frontline for the highest of risk patients. All right. Thanks, Dr. Locke, for the really great discussion dissecting the trials and uh, yeah. you know going into the nuances of, of all the three trials. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely bring you back again you know, as there are more trials of CAR-T and lymphoma you know, data come out. Thank you very my, much. My pleasure. Thanks, Raj. Thank you, Ashwin. Appreciate you guys. You guys take care. Okay?